Hello, and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, and I'm joined, as always, by my fellow Ringer writer, Michael Bauman. Hello. Hello. So, I play in this Diamond Mind Simulation League. Uh, uh, so, you're familiar with Diamond Mind. It's yes. Essentially, you run a computer simulation using stats from any year in in the past of, you know, whatever. It's the dorkiest thing I do. Um, <laughs> but we're currently undergoing our draft for the 2004 season. And I was uh, coming up with my my list for the 10th and 11th rounds of, of our draft. So, we're in the weeds. And I just was overcome with the names. Oh my God. Like the, the, can you remember this guy aspect of, of where we're at in the league? We have former podcast guest, Jeff Blum. I yes. considered, uh, considered drafting Darren Bragg. Do you remember Mark Darren Bellhorn. Bragg? Is he in Mark, there? Is Mark Bellhorn still available? I think he's been taken already. <laughs> Got to get Darren Bragg. Got to get those bragging rights get Darren Bragg. on your team. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Thank you. So we later in this episode are going to talk to our old pal, Stephen Goldman. We're going to preview the Derek Jeter ownership era of the Miami Marlins with him by talking about some precedents for players who made the same sort of transition to ownership and to baseball operations that Derek Jeter will be attempting to make. The Marlins sale was approved reportedly on Wednesday by the other 29 major league owners. We're also going to get to a little bit of awards discussion in just a few minutes. You made your awards picks on the ringer.com and I wrote an article about how it's really hard to write to pick awards and I'm not doing it. So we'll talk I about that. I do find it interesting <laughs> considering how much less time you spend on Twitter than I do and how much less time, therefore, you would spend taking abuse from people for not yeah. mentioning. This is the weirdest thing about this that I've learned since I've started doing this a year ago is that people don't care who you pick. They care who gets mentioned. That's true. Yes. This guy was Furious, no, not furious. Furious is probably overstating, but he's like, "Why didn't you mention Paul Goldschmidt?" I not why didn't you pick Paul Goldschmidt? Why didn't you mention him? <laughs> Never mind, I did mention Paul Goldschmidt. It's just absolutely <laughs> wild. The the things that like. So since I'm not on Twitter as much, I should have just thrown myself on the grenade and just taken the mentions for you. <laughs> Sorry, maybe next year. But before we get to that awards talk, I want to play a quick clip and this comes from a recent White Sox broadcast the excellent Jason Benetti and Steve Stone and it is inspired by a discussion we had on our recent mailbag episode about batting around one down for Delmonico is Kansas City had nine batters come up in the third inning I have a question for you this came from uh Ben Lindbergh, the writer for The Ringer, he's a big baseball fan, the, the Bill Simmons website, The Ringer. Mm -hmm. He wants to know whether or not you think batting around is nine hitters or ten. I believe that batting around is nine, but it could obviously be ten. And depending, I mean, if you're in Paraguay, occasionally it's eight. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes in other places, you know, I, yeah. So in, in the six. Ivory Coast, it could be seven. Yeah. So, uh, but so I've, you don't have a hefty stance on this. I've always thought it was every hitter hits in the same inning, meaning nine guys. See, I agree with you, yeah. but I think there, it's been a very divisive issue on their podcast in ah. some circles. Well, get a new podcast. So, wow, get a new podcast, get a new broadcast. That's what I say. I just want to say what a huge <laughs> fan of Jason Benetti and Steve Stone. I've always been uh, so much so that it doesn't bother me even a little bit that they think that this is just Ben Lindbergh's podcast. But <laughs> yeah, right. That too. Those are two really, really <laughs> smart guys. And I think White Sox fans are lucky to to have them calling. Yeah. Games. Jason Benetti is fantastic. And if you haven't been watching White Sox games recently, which if you're not a White Sox fan, I don't totally blame you, although they have a lot of fun, interesting players who, you know, you should be watching maybe now that we're not glued to any hot pennant races here. But Jason Benetti is fantastic. And I love listening to him, except when he talks about betting around because he is completely incorrect about this yeah. subject, as is Steve Stone. 
you can, uh, I guess, go to Paraguay then. And, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe people will see things the right way there. No, I'm, I'm in the majority. I'm very confident in saying, based on the feedback to our mailbag episode, that more people are with me, which does not mean that I'm right, but I am right. It, it just so happens. Yeah. It's a great time for you to throw your full faith and confidence behind the rule <laughs> of the mob. <laughs> it, well, in this case, I would, I would say that the majority tends to be right about things. So I want to talk about awards for once in my life. And uh, you actually made your picks as discussed on the ringer.com. So you've laid them all out there and I don't really disagree with any of your award picks. And that is because I find it almost impossible to disagree with any of the more major award picks this year because they are either not close at all or incredibly close. Like there are a couple awards, obviously, where I think they're just shoe wins. I mean, Aaron Judge clearly is having one of the top five or so rookie seasons of all time. There is no AL rookie within five wins above replacement of him. He's going to win that award. He should win that award. I think Cody Bellinger is not quite as clear cut a winner in the NL, but I would certainly give him that award. Manager of the year is just always murky and a black box to me. So I, I don't even know how to decide who wins that. Yeah. There's, there's no objective way to decide that. And El Cy Young, I think, is pretty clearly a case of Max Scherzer. I don't know that anyone has as strong an argument as he does. But the other three awards, and especially the MVP picks, I think are maybe the toughest decisions in decades. And I wrote about this for The Ringer. There's an article up today. If you want to go dig into the stats, you can. But essentially, I pointed out that in recent years, BBWAA voters of which I technically am one, although I belong to the New York chapter, so I never actually get a vote because there are so many writers in this chapter and the seasonal award voting privileges rotate within each chapter. So haven't even had a shot to do that yet. But I would say that in recent years, BBWA voters have either been using war more often in deciding which players to pick, or they have just come to evaluate players in ways that are similar to the way that war evaluates players. And so I went back and I looked at the whole DH era since the early 70s, and there's a clear uptick in the percentage of MVP points being awarded to the top two players by war, the top five players by war, the top 10 players by war, however you break it down. The MVP results have aligned much more closely with the war leaders in recent years. And so that would be great if there were a clear war leader this year, but there isn't. There is no one who has, I think, a clear statistical case in the way that typically one player does. And usually it will come down to, well, this guy has the better stats, but this guy's on a playoff team or this guy's clutch or whatever, various ancillary factors that you can bring into it that might be fair to bring into it. But usually there's one clear-cut statistical case, and this year there just isn't. And the way I broke that down is I looked at the number of players within one win above replacement of the leader in a league, and I also looked at within one and a half wins above replacement. And there are 10 guys this year, four in the AL, six in the NL as we record who are within one win of the leader in their respective leagues. That is close to a record. The only year with more guys within one win was 1988 when there were 11 instead of 10. And this is the first year ever that we've had at least four in both leagues at the same time. And it's 17 if you expand the minimum to 1.5 wins behind or the maximum to 1.5 wins behind the leader. There are 17 guys, almost most of them, 12 of them in the NL this year, but 17 guys. And again, 1988, the only year with more, and it was just one more. So this is the most abnormally bunched up top of the war leaderboard that we have seen in decades or possibly ever. It didn't really feel like that to me when I was going through. I guess the way I sort of approach it is I look at both 
baseball reference war and warp and that just Mm -hmm. to sort of narrow it down to however many names and and sometimes there's like with the Aaron judge rookie of the year that's that just reveals that there there is no you know no case to be made for a second player and then the nice thing about war is not the clean number it puts out to encompass all value it's that it formalizes a process that everybody sort of goes through Mm -hmm. making their own evaluations of players is yeah and the thing about it is like there's this assumption that numbers are impartial or that, you know, anything that isn't just like counting things, though, is it relies on human input. So you have to you have to value one thing versus another. And there's a good reason that each of the three major war metrics is weighted the way it is. You know, they, this isn't just thrown together at random, but, you know, it mm-hmm. does place a value judgment on one thing versus another. And it, like, for instance, I don't use Fangraphs for because I don't believe in in fit based uh, pitcher evaluation like it's just mm-hmm. too simplistic if you're going to use an era estimator you need to go with something like dra at at bp uh so you get to things like you know baseball reference thinks Corey kluber is 1.7 wins ahead of chris sale or was when mm-hmm. i wrote the column sale started last night and you know i don't know how that's changed things but warp has them more or less even yeah right baseball prospectus has him has i think sale just a tiny 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 bit ahead right now and i think sale has a somewhat sizable lead at Fangraphs. so if you average those three together Kluber has like a four-tenth of a win advantage, but it would be bigger than that if you rule out the Fangraphs variety. So yeah, and I don't mean to suggest that the only way to vote appropriately is to just look at who has the higher war. It's just that some years, I think, A, that is probably a better way to do it than the way that the BBWAA did it decades ago. If you look back at the 70s and 80s and 90s results, some of them are just so way off that I really would have preferred just literally looking at a award leaderboard if something like that had existed at the time. Even recently, you look at like Ryan Howard came in second in 08 or 09 with a 1.8 win season. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, I think that was one of the turning points when it's, I don't know if it's embracing war so much as rejecting wins in RBI as a, a metric of player value. And then if you don't do that, then you sort of have to take a holistic view of the player, which leads you to do that kind of mental calculus I was talking about. Yeah, there's nuance to it, obviously. And if you want to weight things other than the player's performance, there's no rule against doing that because the award is worded very vaguely. But I think that it's helpful just in that In the past, if we didn't have some framework like this, how would you compare Jose Altuve and Aaron Judge? They're completely different players, not only physically where they're as different as they could be, but you have one guy who is winning a batting title. You have another guy who's winning a home run title. You have one guy who strikes out a lot, one guy who doesn't strike out, one guy who walks twice as much as the other guy, one guy who steals a lot of bases, one guy who plays infield, one guy who plays outfield. It's really hard to just go with your gut and say, this guy is better when you have so many differences in two players' profiles. And I think something like war can be very helpful when you're comparing players like that. And And those two, I I think, would be my leading candidates probably in the AL MVP race, although you certainly could put Salem Kluber in that mix too. And you went with Altuve in your award picks, and I can't quibble with that. And I also can't say that you're definitely right. I am uh, just kind of uh, equal opportunity approval at this point because all of these guys are close enough that – You know, if you want to point out the fact that, say, Judge has been very unclutch, which is true, I don't think that is an inherent quality of Judge or that that will continue in his career, but he has hit worse in clutch situations this year and there is some value hit to that. So if that's what you want to use as your tiebreaker, fine. If you want to use something else, fine. But the point is, there just isn't really a right or wrong answer in the way that some years I think they're. Is I mean, I don't, I don't get too worked up about award votes anymore, but some years there will be a war difference of two or three wins. Often it's Mike Trout versus Mikel Cabrera or something like that. And in that case, I think that's a big enough gap that I'm comfortable saying this guy was better than that guy. Whereas when you have all these people clustered within a win and a win and a half, I mean, that's within the margin of error. So these stats are not 
that precise. Even if you look at them out to one or two decimal points, that doesn't mean they're actually telling you reality. Yeah. Like you said, there are some cases where there is a right answer. And for other Mm -hmm. cases, all I care about is that they just sort of get in the right neighborhood. Like even to the NL race where like- Yeah. You pick Stanton. Yeah, I picked Stanton. I can't really argue with that, but I mean, there's so many other good options, right? There's Rendon, there's Bryant, there's Blackman. They're all right there. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I think that that Stanton had a- a demonstrably better season than Blackman did. But if Blackman winds up winning the MVP and, you know, I don't think it's going to be him. Like the, the one guy to stick out from, from the pack, it's not going to be a position player who plays in course field. But if he did wind up winning it, I would be fine with that. Like it's, it's close Mm -hmm. enough. And you get down to situations where there really isn't, any difference in terms of total value between Altuve and Judge. And even going to like, they've got almost the same on base percentage, for instance. You know, I went with Altuve because given the choice between two equal players, I'll take the up the middle guy. I'll take the guy who does everything well versus a guy who does one thing well. And that's like, that's not a value judgment, really. That's just sort of a, a statement of taste. And I think there there is a point where it gets close enough where if you have to pick one, you don't need a great reason to pick one over the other. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, AL MVP is, is an example of that this year. Yeah, that is, I think both MVP races are really. And if you picked Sale over Kluber in the Cy Young race, I wouldn't be too upset about that either. I'd be a little upset. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's close enough that either is defensible. I think I'd, I think it's defensible. Go with Kluber if I had to choose yeah. one, but you know, it, anyway, this is one of those years where there are occasionally years where I kind of wish I had a vote. Again, I think who wins these awards has become a lot less important to me over the years because I've realized that whoever some subset of the writers decide was the most valuable player by whatever definition of value they're using doesn't actually change anything about what happened in the season on the field. So ultimately, it doesn't matter all that much. But there are certain seasons where I kind of wish I had a vote so that I could cast the decisive ballot for the person who I think is a clear winner. But this year, I'm, I'm kind of happy I don't have one because I just I don't even want to be forced to choose between all of these options I consider virtually equal. Yeah. And there's some of this has to be like you and I just don't have the emotional bandwidth, to, you know, paradoxically by working be like by being professional arguers about sports we don't have <laughs> yeah. the stamina to argue about like trivial stuff like this but i think also the increasing availability of a public statistical record like the yeah. the fact that fan graphs and baseball perspectives and baseball reference retro sheet exists things like in 1934 the mvp was the best player in baseball because the writer said so mm-hmm. and now everybody can take all that information and make their own judgment for themselves and you can go back and look at the leaderboard. You can look at if there was a, a great season by the guy who came in second and third. It was never lost, but it was relegated to secondary importance in a way mm-hmm. that that it wouldn't be now. So I think it's still important, but it matters less than it did before the internet. Yeah. So I guess in line with what you were saying about how we should mention everyone, we should probably list some names now. So no one no one gets angry at us for snubbing, for instance, Nolan Arnato. You said list some names. <laughs> I, I was going back to my my draft list. Timo Perez. You remember Timo Perez? <laughs> I, I sure loved do. Timo Perez. Yeah. No, he was fun. While we're listing names, Steven Strasburg had a really good season. Uh-huh. Justin Turner had a good season. He was my pick at midseason. Arnado, Seeger, Goldschmidt, who was probably also my pick at midseason. Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham. <laughs> He's right up there too. <laughs> All right. I think we've we've mentioned everyone. Did we mention Mike Trout? Mike Trout. We just said Mike Trout. Yeah, I Sorry, let off Mike the Trout. column with Mike Trout. So yeah, even though okay. I eventually Oh, Joey Votto. Joey Votto. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Joey, You're right Joey Votto's strikeout to walk ratio is like yeah. my eyes bugged out of my head. Like yeah. there's, just seeing it like that is just absolutely wild. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we've mentioned everyone who anyone would be justifiably angry about us completely omitting. Yeah, you never know. We say, <laughs> are we just doing MVPs or we have to go down to Cy Young? Like we have to talk about Gio Gonzalez and well, I guess if well, you know, Nationals fans would be. Him, so yeah. I think okay. that filled the quota. Aaron Nola yeah. had a really good year. I think that sort of went under the radar. I don't, you know, he's not, I don't even know that I'd put him on a top five Cy Young ballot, but he had a really good year. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors and we'll be back with Stephen Goldman to talk about the next chapter for Derek Jeter. I want to take a minute to tell you about this great app I discovered, Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. Sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually cool, top-rated hotels you want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. I'm getting married just two weekends from now. Gulp. Michael and Steven are both invited. If you want to crash my wedding, you could find Hotel Tonight to find a perfect place to stay. It's not too late to do that. In fact, you could do it right now, because even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can actually book in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So get in on these killer last-minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. And I also want to tell you about mybookie.ag. Ever since we started this podcast, people have been asking us for advice. Usually it's what team to bet on this week. Obviously, they haven't heard about my reluctance to make predictions, but I can tell you this, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. And that's why we tell people to go to mybookie.ag. MyBookie has been in this business for years. Their reputation is rock solid. They do 100% cash bonuses, so off the bat, you're making money for doing nothing. And they have the fastest payouts. Seriously, just two business days. If you already know who's going to win, lay down some cash and win big today. So make your way to MyBookie. You win, they pay. They have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and an all-new mobile site that makes wagering on the go a breeze. If you join now, MyBookie will match your deposit with up to a 100% bonus. Just visit mybookie.ag, that's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E dot A-G, and use the promo code RINGERMLB to activate the offer. You play, you win, you get paid. All right, so on Tuesday, we heard reports that the other 29 Major League owners had approved the sale of the Marlins to the group led by Bruce Sherman, the money man, and Derek Jeter, the more public face and also reportedly the probable CEO and head of baseball operations. And this is sort of an unorthodox move in modern baseball, I would say, and as we like to do at times when something unusual happens, we like to bring on our go-to historian, Stephen Goldman, who is now an accomplished podcaster in his own right. He has started his own excellent podcast, The Infinite Inning, since the last time we had him on. But we wanted to talk about precedents for this transition that Jeter is going to be making, going from beloved and accomplished player to front office executive and see how well that has worked out in the past. So hello, Steve. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah. So would you say that this move is less common than it once was? I don't know if this was ever common for a player of Jeter's caliber and reputation to just vault up to the front office with no real transition other than the Players' Tribune interlude. (laughs) But it seems even more unusual today when running a baseball team and running the baseball operations side of a baseball team is a much more involved job than it once was. Yeah, I think it used to be more frequent in that there wasn't this bifurcation of, say, the manager's role and the general manager's role. There was certainly a business manager who minded the books and stuff, but you weren't minding the farm system. You weren't commanding a staff of scouts and so on. So, for example, somebody like John McGraw went from being a player to a player manager to basically running the entire operation of the New York Giants, making his own trades and really didn't have a whole lot of consulting to do with anybody else. But over time since then, and don't forget, John McGraw has been gone now a long time. He stepped down in 1932, so over 80 years ago. The general manager's role has evolved and become more elaborate and specialized. We've had a lot of discussion lately about how you kind of have to have an Ivy League degree at this point to rise to that level. And so, no, it wasn't always common, but it was easier earlier on when people felt like there were fewer prerequisites for the position. Mm -hmm. So what's the first transition like this that comes to mind or maybe the most prominent? Well, I guess the player who early on kind of exemplified this was Joe Cronin, the Hall of Fame shortstop. And Cronin's whole career was kind of implicated being involved in with the front offices of his teams. He 
was most prominent with the Red Sox, but he came to popularity or fame with the Washington Senators and was the player manager for the 1933 pennant winners. But he also married the owner's daughter. And mm, so when, when the Red Sox were bought by Tom Yawkey and Tom Yawkey went about and was kind of a proto Steinbrenner in that he just started buying a lot of players. The Red Sox had been dead for a long time from the Harry Frizee years going forward. So Yawkey was just going around the league, going to poorer owners like Connie Mack and saying like, how about you give me Jimmy Fox for, you know, three guys and a hundred thousand dollars. How about you give me lefty Grove for another three guys and another hundred thousand dollars, that kind of thing. Well, he made those, that kind of offer to Clark Griffith for Cronin and Griffith was hesitant to trade his own son-in-law, but Cronin being implicated in the, the whole, again, the family in the front office said, you can't afford not to do that. So he goes to the Red Sox. He becomes player manager there and he's player manager there right until I guess he's about 38. And then he had another couple of years as, as pure manager. And he starts doubling as general manager when Eddie Collins retires. He was Yawkey's initial partner and general manager. And the problem with this is that when you are responsible for every aspect of the team, including being a player and including all this other stuff, you can have mixed motives. And I think the most famous example of that is that mid-career, Cronin got the yips and he had to go down on his knees to field grounders. And as you can imagine, that cuts down on a shortstop's range tremendously. And at about the same time, the Red Sox, Yawkey, had bought the Louisville franchise of the American Association specifically to get access to a prospect that they had named Pee Wee Reese. Now, you've never heard of Pee Wee Reese as a famous Red Sox. He's in the Hall <laughs> of Fame as a Dodger. And the reason was because Cronin wasn't prepared to give up on the shortstop position and move himself to second or third or first or someplace where he wouldn't have to fall down to pick up ground balls. And he arranged for Reese to be traded off to the Dodgers. And that's how we get the, the Pee Wee Reese story. Where this gets even worse is that as the Red Sox became notable for a team that wasn't going to integrate, Cronin is still in the front office. He is still complicit in this whole racial thing. And eventually, even though he's promoted out of there to president of the American League and he makes the Hall of Fame, I think, about 1956, his reputation essentially because of his contact with that makes him a Hall of Famer along with Yaki himself that you can be really uncomfortable with. And you mentioned Calvin Griffith, who was, I believe, the last player before Jeter to, or last former player to, to own a Major League Baseball uh, franchise. So, like, this is, it's not just that Jeter is in the front office. You know, there have been players who are general managers and team presidents as far back as, as there's been baseball, but Jeter's entanglement with the ownership group as well makes this sort of an interesting proposition. So what can you tell us about Clark Griffith? Well, yeah, I want to distinguish between Clark and Calvin. Calvin was his adopted son, actually his nephew, who moved the team from Washington to Minnesota. Uh, he said quite publicly because they had fewer African-Americans in Minnesota. He was a terrible, terrible human being. Clark Griffith <laughs> Uh, was also kind of implicated in all that, but maybe in a in a more benign way and and did some good things for soldiers and veterans. And at one point he did invite some Negro leaguers in and say, hey, how would you guys feel about playing for the senators? And they said, you know, we'd really like that. And he said, well, that's really great. I'll get back to you on that. And he never did. And part of that was because in the later part of the senators run, the senators were really good under him for a long time, actually. But in the later part of the run, they were really bad. And he was making more money renting Griffith Stadium out for Negro League games than he was for the actual senators games. Anyway, he was a pitcher. He was a pretty good one. Maybe he would have gone to the Hall of Fame anyway as kind of a player manager, even if he hadn't had the ownership portion of it. And obviously that also happened earlier with Connie Mack, who was a catcher and and eventually owned a team. Branch Rickey had pieces of the various teams that he ran. He start, also started as a catcher and he wound up as the general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates in part because he got into a struggle with Walter O'Malley where there were all kinds of proxy bidders and he had to be bought out. So it has happened, but mostly Owners have not been that keen on admitting former players to the group. Reggie Jackson has tried to buy a team a number of times over the years. Uh, Hank Greenberg, who is probably the most successful example of a player making the transition 
or I should say a star player making a transition to the front office. Branch Rickey was actually a pretty terrible player. Uh, Greenberg did very, very well running the Indians. He was in the front office for both the 48 and 54 World Series teams, one of which won, one of which got swept out. And it seems like there's a further barrier at that point. Greenberg tried to get ownership of both the Indians and the White Sox and was part of some really interesting sort of boardroom tug of wars with both those teams, but it never did work out with for him and he ended up on the outside looking in. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's obviously become less common for former players to be controlling the baseball operations of a club, although it's not unheard of. But even when it happens today, there is usually some seasoning process that happens. It's not like you go straight from the field to being in charge of everything. Someone like Jerry DePoto, of course, whom we've talked about. Who is our favorite general manager. On this podcast. <laughs> yeah. And he controls the baseball operations of the Mariners and indirectly every other team through his constant trades <laughs> with them. But he had a fairly drawn out process to get to that point. He worked as a special assistant in the Rockies front office, and then he was a scout for the Red Sox, and then he was the head of pro scouting back for the Rockies again, and then he took over the Diamondbacks as general manager, I suppose. And so it it took a while. I think he, he even had a intermediate role with the Diamondbacks before he succeeded Josh Burns there. So there was a, a while there. There was a long acclimation period. It wasn't just retire and take over immediately. And there's no real reason to think that Derek Jeter is equipped to do this. We know that he's maybe equipped to be in the public eye and to deal with the press and to be a popular person at the head of a not particularly popular franchise. But that's kind of all we know as far as what he brings to this franchise. Even Dave Stewart, who was much derided as GM of the Diamondbacks, had more experience, I think, just as an agent and some mm -hmm. other lower-level front office experience he had. Or Ruben Amaro Jr., who certainly wasn't the Stewart was more of a star than than Amaro. But Amaro worked under Pat Gillick for a number of years before he got his shot to be the general manager of of the Phillies. Not that he was very good at it either. So it's there's no guarantee of success either way. Is is part of it whether you have the experience or not. But you're right. It's it's complex now. He can delegate a lot, and you know from seeing Brian Cashman close up that Brian Cashman doesn't claim to know everything about everything, and he has assistant GMs who are more focused on contract, contractual matters, excuse me. Mm -hmm. He may have some that are more focused on analytics and, and some that are more focused on scouting, and then he can receive all that information and make a good decision. Now, I don't see why Jeter couldn't do that. Now, is he capable of making that good decision? I don't know. And don't forget, he's also the guy who... And this is shades of Joe Cronin in a way. When Alex Rodriguez came in, and this seems forever ago that Alex Rodriguez was a better defensive shortstop than Derek Jeter instead of kind of arthritic third baseman. Mm -hmm. But there was that moment when Jeter could have moved off short and he refused to do that. And the Yankees suffered for that. So that, that was not a, a team first move. And now he's going to have to think about those things differently and be certainly less deferential to any player he might find in a similar position. And this is why everybody's sort of licking their lips, including me, at the prospect of Jeter running a team. Because in order to become that level of star, you have to have not only an ego, but an unfamiliarity with failure. And we've seen this play out every time a player of that stature has moved into ownership, whether it's Michael Jordan, whether it's Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux could well be that kind of owner if the NHL hadn't rigged the draft lottery to dump Sidney Crosby in his lap. But this is just such a different gig than playing. And it just doesn't seem to occur to ex players with that kind of track record of success. Like you said, just the fact that and he wouldn't move offshore for for A-Rod. seems like, you know, he could have grown in the past 13 years, but that seems like pretty powerful evidence that he's not the kind of person who's going to realize, hmm, maybe the front office side of this is a lot more complex than I thought, and maybe I should delegate to somebody else. Well, that kind of reminds me of Ted Williams becoming manager of the second Washington Senators team, the one that became the Rangers. Mm -hmm. And people said that he could not identify or understand when his players failed and that he couldn't teach hitting because it was so easy for him that he had kind of an innate expectation that he would just say, well, you step up there and you swing and you do it like this and they could just do it. And that was a limitation on his part. 
but an understandable one. And I also think that to be that kind of star, there has to be something wrong with you. And I don't necessarily mean that you're a secret serial killer, but it's a quality of egotism or a quality of need or a quality of, of something that pushes you like it pushed, say, Ty Cobb to be the very best at what you're doing in a field of all these guys who are the very best athlete on their playground or in their high school team or, or whatever. And at that point, relating to other people might be harder. And for Jeter, we don't really know because for all the the popularity that he had in New York and as accessible as he was with the media, he also never said anything and never revealed very much of himself. And as far as I'm concerned, he's just a time traveling Android from the future. <laughs> uh, one that could hit very well. And, you know, even in the future, robotic range is a problem. So he didn't have much lateral movement, but he just never said much. And one thing that's going to be difficult for him is if he's that stoic with the media now being the face of the franchise, you know, he's his popularity is going to be damaged, at least in Florida. And that has happened with some of these players who have made that transition. Just the type of public personality that Jeter was as a player is so reminiscent of Michael Jordan that his disastrous tenure as an owner in Charlotte is, you know, that's just ringing all sorts of alarm bells. And like the other thing is there's a certain extent to which business is just having piles of money. Like a lot of it is bullshit to build a good baseball team. On the other hand, you have to be lucky and you have to have a lot of money, but you also have to, you need to have that a level of awareness that I just don't know star athletes have. Like I, I was talking to someone last week about when I interviewed Corey Seager in spring training and he came off like in the, like Jeff in the episode of community where he takes anti-anxiety drugs and just has no anxiety whatsoever. <laughs> and like that comes off as charisma, which is important for somebody. It's the public face of an organization. But like, I just don't know if somebody like that is going to get in the weeds the way you think of, I don't know, like a Theo Epstein type doing. Yeah. And even before Jeter has officially taken over, there's already been maybe more negative PR than he's gotten in years, just from some reports surrounding him, the suggestion that this new ownership group might cut payroll, might consider trading John Carl Stanton. There was that report about how Jeter in the process of firing David Sampson, requested that Sampson in turn fire four of the Marlins legends, Jack McKeon and Jeff Conine and and people like that who've been among the few bright spots that this franchise has had. And it it seemed at least the way that report was worded that Jeter was trying to avoid being the bad guy for those decisions. And so I wonder just you know, he must care about his reputation maybe more than Jeffrey Luria does, because I think Luria at this point is probably beyond trying to salvage that or beyond caring, whereas <laughs> Jeter has certainly put a lot of effort over the years into looking good and keeping his nose clean and staying out of the tabloids. And so maybe he will continue to want to be liked or at least respected. And maybe that's better for Marlins fans than Loria was. But yeah, I do wonder whether his angelic, unbesmirched reputation can survive getting his hands dirty running a team every day. No, it won't. You know, the thing is, if you've ever been management, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, sometimes you have to be kind of a dick about things. Mm -hmm. And that might mean asking somebody to work hours they don't want to work or asking them to write something in, in our business on a fast deadline. And it's true in, in baseball also. And, you know, this isn't an example of a star player making that transition. But when Ralph Houck became manager of the, of the Yankees after being their third string catcher for like 10 years, he established himself in the clubhouse as being this attaboy guy, like, you're so great. Everything you do is wonderful. We're so happy that you're here. And then after about three years, that he was kicked upstairs and he became GM. And there was a huge amount of cognitive dissonance, if not outright hatred, when it came to that year, 1964, and these players who the previous fall, he was saying, oh, it's so great to have you here. You're so perfect. I, I could not imagine having a better shortstop than you. And then that guy would go upstairs and say, so listen, Ralph, I need a raise. And Ralph <laughs> would say, raise, you suck. And that was the position that he had been placed in. But for those players, they were forced to say, oh, so he's just a complete fraud. 
he's he's insincere. He's he's dishonest. And I'll give you another example, which is that in, in this may be a longer story than we have time for, but in 1923, a guy named Emil Fuchs, who was the attorney for the New York Giants, liked Christy Mathewson so much and lo- loved him and was seeing him die of tuberculosis. And he wanted to give Christy something to do. So he bought the Braves for Christy Mathewson to be team president of. And again, Christy Mathewson is a guy who very much had Jeter's reputation, this incredible pitcher, known for honesty, known for just how great he was. And then he goes there and he spends essentially the last two years of his life before having to recuse himself because sadly he did cough himself to death of dickering with players over things like meal money and saying like, no, you guys can eat on 10 cents a day. In our day, we ate on 10 cents a day. You know, you can go hungry for a week. These kinds of terrible things that only look bad in comparison are only excusable because he just wasn't the same guy due to his health. Yeah, and there are a couple other players that we discussed via email, but we haven't really touched on yet, who were Jeter's superiors as players, I would say, but did not cover themselves in glory in their front office roles, Charlie Geringer and Hank Aaron. So can you give us those stories? Well, real briefly, Charlie Geringer became the general manager of the Detroit Tigers in 1952, and he was there for two years. And it's not real clear why the owner, Walter Briggs, asked him to do that. He was obviously a great player. He was a 320 career hitter. He was known as the mechanical man because he was such a consistent second baseman. But as mechanical man implies, he wasn't really Mr. Personality. So you weren't putting him out there to be the face of the franchise the way that you might Magic Johnson. And at the same time, when he retired... He didn't stay in baseball. He got into the auto parts business, as would befit a Detroit Tigers star. He was selling seat covers to Ford and GM, and he made quite a bit of money that way. But the owner went to him and said, of all the people in the universe who are available to be GM now, I need you. And the problem was that he was so busy with seat covers and stuff, he hadn't followed the game. He had no idea what was going on. And he made some deals that were basically giveaways of star players like Vic Wirtz to reduce payroll, but he couldn't move the team. And in fact, they lost, I think, 100 games the first year he was there and 90 games the second year. And they said, can I please go home now? I want to get back to my seat covers. And they let him go. And he didn't budge the needle at all as far as that franchise. And he really had no clue why he was there. Even years later, he was still talking about it in interviews going like, yeah, that was weird, man. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I was just, you know, and, and the Tigers were much better after that. You know, it took a while. Hank Aaron's a little more complicated because although Hank Aaron was director of player development for the Braves as the Braves kind of went downhill in the 1970s and 80s. He was he had that position starting about 1978 and had it kind of straight through the Bobby Cox renaissance when Cox went down himself from the general manager suite to manage the team again and gets himself in in the Hall of Fame that way. He was never scouting director or farm director or GM. So I'm not clear on just how much that position was the kind of ceremonial slot that you would give to a player of his stature or how many decisions he was making on trades and and so forth. So I'm I'm kind of inclined to give him a pass. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's whatever Hawk Harrelson was. (laughs) I don't know what category to put that in, but not a success. (laughs) You know, he was a a good player sometimes. Like he, he had a huge year for the Red Sox in 1968 that like doesn't look like anything now because it was 1968. But if you look at his baseball reference card, it's like a 150 OPS. It's something that would be good for an MVP award in most years. And I think he finished second, but he was also even then kind of a personality case and would quit to, you know, become a professional golfer, things like that. So he was also kind of a distraction, but he's been broadcasting White Sox games for a long time. And for reasons that aren't totally clear to me, they made him the general manager for 1986. And this was a team that had won the AL West with 99 wins in 1983. They were a couple years off of that. They were still trying to get back with the same core. And it wasn't a bad team. They had a really good pitching staff and almost no offense whatsoever. And in very short order, Harrelson did two things that really kind of defy explanation even now. One was one of the good things they had going for them was their manager was Tony La Russa. And 
he was the same guy who had managed the team to the division title in 1983. He got fired about 60 games into that season, instantly was snapped up by the Oakland A's, and the rest is history. So he deprived the team of its best manager, and the the litany of White Sox managers since then is really kind of mixed, particularly in the immediate aftermath of that. The other thing that he did that I still, if somebody looks this up and I'm exaggerating, I apologize, but this has been frozen in my mind for over 30 years. He decided that Carlton Fisk, a Hall of Fame catcher who was pushing 40 back then, was now going to be a left fielder. Mm-hmm. I think this was to get Ron Karkovice into the lineup. Karkovice was a, a guy who had it was a better glove. Not a name I expected to hear today, Ron Karkovice. <laughs> yeah, he had a great mustache for the time. Uh, it was considered a better glove, couldn't hit at all. But anyway, you know, if you've been playing catcher for forever, you're not going to be a gold glove left fielder. And the way I kind of remember it, you know, they would pose Carlton Fisk kind of like an action figure with his arms up. They'd put him on a dolly and kind of wheel him out to left field, tip him off the dolly, position him facing home plate, you know, again, aim him, his arms and his glove up towards the sky. And if something was hit towards that exact spot, it was great. But otherwise he was just, he was just there and birds would perch on him and, you know, he would scare the chickens and things like that. And, and the thing was, he was miserable about it too. So you have this guy who's, who is the face of the franchise being kicked out of his position for no appreciable gain and messing up your your outfield defense and undermining your pitching staff, which is the one good thing you you have going. Other than that, he traded Ron Hassey back and forth to the Yankees about three times. Well, more than two and less than ten. But it was a lot of times. Like they just every time those those two teams called each other, they traded Ron Hassey. And he also got the Yankees to bite on Britt Burns, a starting pitcher who was physically incapable of pitching, and they dealt a number of prospects for him anyway. So I guess you can say he made some good deals. Mm-hmm. Well, the good news, I guess, is that things can't get any worse. So it has to be an improvement <laughs> over the old regime. But I'm really fascinated to see what happens. No, that's the most dangerous phrase in the English <laughs> language is things can't get any worse. Oh, I think it can. Things can absolutely get worse. They can always get worse. Things probably won't get any worse, but we don't know that for sure. I want to insist that they will because (laughs) he has said or it has been reported that they don't think their present payroll is sustainable Mm -hmm. and that they're going to try to get out of the long-term contracts that they have. So that means that somehow they have to get somebody to bite on Giancarlo Stanton, even though his contract just keeps escalating for the next 500 years. They have to move Yelich. They have to move Ozuna. And then there's not a whole lot left. And you guys know there's not a ton in their farm system. And it's not a sure thing, even when you make these kinds of you know, uh, uh, you know, Andrew Miller kinds of deals that you're going to get that kind of reward for it and automatically restart your team. And then again, you know, you have three years, you bring the guys up and then the arbitration cycle starts all over again. So the question is, if they're talking about having the lowest payroll in baseball by a lot, and that's, it seems to me that that puts off a really important question, which is if that's what you have to do, perpetually cycle down to the lowest uh, uh, payroll in baseball and only have a window of like three to six years in which to contend, why is that team there? And I don't think that Jeter can solve that problem. And I, from what I've, I've heard, I, it doesn't seem like he intends to. Mm-hmm. Well, at least they didn't just build a billion dollar taxpayer funded stadium that, you know, <laughs> sort of in the the spirit of throwing good money after bad will force them to to stay in Miami for the next 20 years or more. Mm-hmm. So we got that going for us. Yeah. I just <laughs> wonder, I mean, in the past, there was an era of baseball where just having been in the game for as long as Jeter has been in the game was sufficient to qualify you for some sort of management role. And the people running a lot of teams were former players who had just developed their scouting eye over the years and would go out and get players. But as you mentioned, it's not really how that works now. And that's okay if you do delegate and you know that you have to staff up your front office with people who can do things you can't do. But we just don't know whether Jeter is aware of the state of the art or whether Sherman is aware of what a modern major league front office looks like. And we know that Derek Jeter wasn't a huge fan of, say, defensive stats during his career. No, he doesn't have to be a a big fan of them, but he has to have someone who is aware of them and knows what they say and can work with them. And we just don't 
really have any idea whether he's inclined to do that, whether he knows his weaknesses as a front office operator and can shore them up with other people who are good at those things. So it's really a complete unknown, which I guess will make this very interesting. And we have no idea what will happen to the Players' Tribune either. Who will save the players? <laughs> is that Tribune? a conflict of interest? <laughs> yeah, and uh, does that even does that even matter in yes. modern? I was going to say journalism, but. <laughs> and the long line of Derek Jeter branded kids fiction books, which just he's been <laughs> churning them out now, one after the other. Will that continue? That's the big question. So, will he just put in the hours? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that too. If you if you think about. How much time, I mean, if you read Ferducci's book on the Cubs, whether you thought it was a great work of literature or not, that's one thing. But, I mean, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer live and breathe this stuff 24-7. There's nothing dilettantish about them. Mm-hmm. And so, is he really going to be there for – it's daily for a year, every year. That's expecting a lot of a guy who has played – his job has been three hours a day plus workouts for his entire life. Mm-hmm. Well, at least there's no recent track record for – neophytes who have no idea (laughs) of the time constraints of a job taking a a glamorous but stressful (laughs) position and failing so i don't know who you're referring to we will end this segment here (laughs) and you can find steve on twitter at go steven goldman you can find him writing at fanrag sports you can hear him weekly on the infinite inning baseball podcast which you can find at fanrag and everywhere else that a person finds podcasts there's a new episode up this morning if you're listening to this on thursday so steve thank you as always for coming on thank you so Stephen brought up ron karkovice and his mustache and that yeah. brought to mind that sort of the 80s and early 90s were the golden age of catcher mustaches i sort of <laughs> zoned out a little bit while he was after he said ron karkovice because i had to go look up don slot do you oh, remember yeah. don slot he had a mustache like he had a mustache out of a 70s porno about 80s cops it was just <laughs> I think he still might. I think he's uh, he's like some. Oh, is he around? I don't. He's a hitting instructor. I think now. Yeah, I've got to seek out Don Slot and his mustache. (laughs) That was a great mustache. I guess that predated Salfasano a little bit. Yeah, Salfasano had a good mustache. I remember weirdly there was a catcher named Greg Olson and there was a pitcher named Greg Olson, but it was the pitcher Greg Olson who had the good mustache, if, <laughs> if memory serves. So, you know, if, if mustaches come back, yeah. I would not object. <laughs> Don Slot. Yeah, Don Slot. Okay, so we will come back on Monday, which is the last day of the 2017 regular season, I believe. And just a day before the playoffs start, the play-in games start. So we'll probably be busy with playoff preview stuff next time. So I'm going to make you predict some oh, stuff. please. Yeah. So we will be back. Enjoy the last few days of Major League Baseball in 2017 for many of you. And we'll be back to talk playoffs soon. You've been listening to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Things change. The weather changes. Your mood definitely changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear, while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.